Welcome to Filled to Flourish with Luke and Lauren. Where emotional health takes a stage and your story matters. Hey everyone, welcome back. We're so glad you're here. We sure are. Yeah, it's a good, good day to be chatting with you all. And we're so excited to share about story. Um, this idea and this concept of story. I think in verbiage, we've only known for a few years, really. Yeah. Um, but in concept, I think we've recognized for a long time that we've had a story sure. and our story has dramatically impacted our present day, um, how we think, what we believe about ourselves, what we believe about other people, how we engage with people, mm. what we think about God, um, how we feel in the world, like all of these things we've we've recognized has a lot to do with our story. But then when we were given more language along the road, um, along the way, it's been so powerful to recognize story as a concept um, and be able to learn and grow from that. So today we'll be sharing about that. Yeah, like story work is it's like a roadmap. I, I think it that way. Um, before we knew we had experiences, we knew um, our our family of origin affected us, um, but we didn't know what to do with that information. Yeah, um, and some of it was even this is normal. Our, like our experience was normal. Right. Uh, we didn't understand what normal was necessarily, what healthy was. Uh, we didn't know what to do with the things that weren't normal. Mm -hmm. We just looked at them and said, oh, okay, maybe that wasn't normal. wasn't good. Now we're going to move on. Not realizing that affects our attachment, that affects um, our safety, it, uh, affects when we get triggered and how we get triggered. Um, and so StoryWorks kind of said, okay, here's the roadmap of looking at your, starting with looking at your story and then what yeah. to do to move towards not being controlled by your story, not being triggered, not um, earning a secure attachment. Mm -hmm. And when we say story, we mean from the very beginning. Yeah. Just like any good story, the story starts not at the fifth chapter or the 10th, but the very beginning of that person of that story. So that's um, even even as far back as when you once you were conceived, the time um, spent in the womb and what was going on in, in your caregivers lives during that, that's all part of your story. So I was just thinking the other day as I was thinking about story, um, I just had this thing dawn on me of like, wow, how crazy is it that our lives begin in a lot of cases as toddlers with our stories being told to us. Mm, yeah. Um, the concept of a story for a little kid. Think about when you sit with a little kid and you start to tell them a story. They're usually the main event. They're usually the the whole um, focus. the focus of the story. You know, once upon a time, there was a little boy. And this little boy had the biggest smile and the most wonderful dimples. And every day, this little boy liked to get up and go outside and explore the woods. And who you're talking to is the little boy in the story. And adults do it all the time. I mean, it's so normal, at least in our culture, for this is how we start to, to explain the concept of story um, to children. Mm 
-hmm. and they're always in the story. And so then children start telling stories about themselves. So their first story in kindergarten and first grade, as they're writing down, tell us a story about a day that you um, had the most, the best surprise you've ever had. So the kid starts telling his story. And so this idea isn't that foreign to our culture. Um, We, I think to all people, because story is just a concept that's a much grander um, part of human than just a specific culture. But um, one day, I think along the way, we realize our story isn't so bright and shiny anymore. And there's parts of it that make us feel shame for what people may have done to us or said to us or things we have maybe have done. Um, our stories feel a lot more vulnerable than they felt when we were five or six. And so we pull back and we stop telling our story. And there's such a tragicness to that because um, we miss out on the beauty of not only telling it, but to tell your story, you have to know your story. And so when we, we, whatever age it is, when we start pulling in and keeping our story to ourselves. Um, I think part of us dies and the, the insight that we have to our story lessens and gets dimmer and dimmer um, until we're living our life as an adult one day and we don't even know our story. Yeah, It's hidden, it's locked up, it's safe in there, it's protected, and we think it's not affecting us anymore. Right. But oh, how wrong we are. So true. It is a great picture of, of what we're talking about. I think another reason that we stop telling our story or stop knowing our story is we we allow other people to write our story. Yes. We hand over that pen sometimes. We do. Uh, we, we, from a, like a teacher maybe tells us that we're not intelligent. Mm-hmm. So they write that story. Yeah. A coach tells us that we're not gifted enough. They write that story. And if there's, without a secure attachment or without safety, we start owning those truths. Yeah. And, and because, and there's a disconnect there mm-hmm. of our story. So we own it, but we don't really, um, we don't tell it. Mm-hmm. It's told to us. It's told to us, right. And over the years that happens, Yep. Hundreds of times. Yep. And it builds the story that we just are walking through, not writing, not creating, not not living out of the truth of who, who we are, but like almost robotically becoming Defining what us. what those people yeah. have said we are. So moving from that, um, I'm going to quote Adam Young again, <laughs> or his idea. Um of why we need to look at the past. Some people say like that's in the past. Like yeah. That happened to me. I remember it. It wasn't good, but it's not affecting me. So I think that's the majority thought. Yeah. Yeah. It's and even if it's yeah, this is what we're saying. We see it, it happened. Mm-hmm. Um he says the past is merely the past. It mm-hmm. is not dead. Mm-hmm. Um and he says that because the way our brain is designed is if there's a trauma that happens, our brain um, stores that and remembers the way it made you feel. 
And if there's not safety created after that trauma, then that trauma becomes, stays active. Your body just starts to store it. Mm-hmm. So anytime you feel a similar feeling, your brain's like, oh, this isn't safe. So it brings that trauma back up. Mm-hmm. And so then as, as that more trauma is added to that, like all of that trauma starts, is connected and is brought up. And so you start filtering your current experience through your past traumas. That makes so much sense. It, it does more than I like. Once once he put it, when I heard him talking about this, it just changed the way I saw relationships. Yeah. Um, so like with us, you're safe. I love you. We've grown a we're growing a secure attachment. Yeah. Where there's safety. Um, but if you do something that triggers a, a trauma from my childhood and is connected to the other traumas, my brain no longer is interpreting, is seeing you as my wife who's safe and, and trustworthy. It puts a filter on and says, you're now that person that hurt me. Yep. So I've used the example of like a lion um, chasing you. That's a trauma. So that filter is like, oh, my wife is now that lion that's about to attack me. And so my body becomes activated to respond how my body initially responded in that first trauma. Mm-hmm. Oh, I need to protect myself mm-hmm. or I need to shut down. Yeah. Uh, and so it's been really helpful for us to um, uh, rehash. Yeah. Like um, when we come back to a, 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 a conflict right. of, oh, I see where I, how I was interpreting you mm-hmm. or it's, um, in the moment, I'm like, oh, wait, um, I'm seeing her this way, or she's seeing me this way, so I need to be safe. Mm-hmm. And can you, yeah, I just want to jump in. Um, can you explain, because someone could say, well, yeah, maybe you're feeling that way, but you know logic. Just tell yourself logic. Right. Tell yourself that's that's dumb. Your wife's fine. She's not here to hurt you. But can you explain why in those times um, our our frontal brain doesn't really get to give their input. Yeah. It doesn't really matter what the frontal brain thinks. Yes. And I've, I think I've mentioned this a little bit on the previous podcast, yeah, you but did. I mean, not it's, everybody's going to hear them all. So mm-hmm. just the idea of your frontal lobe, the, the part of your brain that's right on your forehead, it is what is in control of your logic, your, even your language, mm-hmm. um, your, your thoughts, um, your intentionality. And when you're triggered, that part of your brain gets shut off and your limbic part of your brain, which is in the back brainstem area, limbic system system gets activated. um, And that is your fight, flight, or freeze response area. And for the purpose of survival, again, your brain doesn't interpret a person that says something mean to you and a lion chasing you. Uh, it sees, okay, survival. You don't need to think of your next steps. You don't need to calculate things. You don't need to use words. You just need to survive. And so your frontal lobe shuts down and activates your limbic system to survive. And so you, that's why your brain doesn't think through things. That's why mm-hmm. in a, in tenths of a second, you are lashing out at somebody. You're feeling that tension, that adrenaline's 
flowing mm-hmm. through your brain, your body, yep. and you're ready to fight. Your, your fist might even be clenched. Yep. And you're like, why are my fist clenched? It's because your body's ready to fight. Or you shut down completely because um, you need to hide. Mm-hmm. Your body's saying hide. Um, and so um, you can't think well, your way out of it. Right. This isn't a logic, like, oh, just add some logic to the mm-hmm. situation and you'll be fine. And you can't, and that's why it's so harmful when you t- talk to somebody and say, you, that, that sounds, that's silly. Like, mm-hmm. you know better. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just a lie. Think, think better thoughts. It's your brain's not thinking. Which I love the concept of felt safety mm-hmm. because um, we learned this years ago with, when we were learning about trauma of the idea that Something can be physiologically safe and actually safe, but if someone doesn't experience your presence or that situation, conversation is safe, it's actually not safe. Mm -hmm. In their their, uh, neurological system, they are not experiencing it as safe. But felt safety is, is, you know, you take the same situation and you create safety and you're able to hug and hold your spouse and their neurological system stops their activation the fight or flight activation goes down and then they can experience felt safety um which then they'll interpret the words you're saying and the things you're asking of them or the feedback you're giving them in a totally different way than if there's not felt safety i think maybe this is a good time for that story that uh, we were talking about um that explains that kind of shows the trigger Mm -hmm. the the Lack of logic, yeah. Um, but then you create a felt safety. Um, so with my story, uh, I grew up most of my life thinking that I was stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked really hard in school and never came easy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really didn't think I had much to offer people because of that. Um, Fast forward into my early 30s, I find out that I have ADD, mm-hmm. which I didn't know that whole time. So, and explained so much, so much. <laughs> um, but I still struggled all through all through my school so much, not having the support that I needed to help me um, know how to read with this disability, to study better, to. Yeah. Um, keep yourself on task and organized. You had to figure yes. that all out yourself, not even knowing that you did it differently right. than the typical brain. Like I thought it was just normal. I thought everybody struggled this way and this people were better at it. Um, so I had that throughout my my um, life. Um, so in my early 30s, I get diagnosed with ADD and I try Ritalin just to see if it would help me. And it <laughs> changed everything. <laughs> I'm telling you, it was very helpful. Um, yeah. It helped me um, stay on task. It helped me focus, helped me keep my train of thought. Um, it, it also gave me motivation mm-hmm. to um, do more. Yeah. Go like make podcasts and stuff. <laughs> Stuff like that, yeah. <laughs> and it it also helped with the constant fast pace that was always happening in your brain. Yeah. It caused you a lot of anxiety, and That's so addressing and treating and supporting your ADD has helped your anxiety, which we didn't even know those were connected. connected. But now it makes so much sense. Yeah. 
And it also has helped you attune better emotionally. Mm -hmm. So most people would think of it, well, a a brain that is wired that way, that's just when they're doing like work. Right. Well, actually, it it very much affects relationships too and conversation and how you can be available for someone when your brain is keyed in. And um, when I'm not, I I mean, when we would go on a date, (laughs) going on a date, Lauren would never let me sit in front of a TV. Not because I was trying to watch TV instead of being with her, but sports games were the worst. <laughs> but th- whenever there's movement, I I look at it and it's like it just catches my attention. Oh my so gosh, you would try so, so long, hard. It was <laughs> it was like stress of of uh, going out because I would be distracted all the time. And I would get I would get mad at you. You would like what is the point? We got a babysitter. We're on a date night. Like you don't even want to talk to me. What's like, your deal? I'm trying. <laughs> And um, so like the attuning, it was just, I wasn't, it wasn't, I wasn't interested that my brain was picking up on so many other things, Yes. noises, lots of other um, sources of stimulation, which cause anxiety. Yep. But it also, yeah, motivated me to be able to stay on task, which drove me to do more research, yeah. create um, podcasts, create documents for counseling and um, it helped me in counseling um, to because it's like, I would describe it as, without Ritalin, it's like holding a gla- uh, holding water in your hand a lot of times. Trying to hold a thought. Holding a thought is like holding water in your hand. Yeah. It, it just That doesn't work very well. No, it just falls through your hand. Yeah, go figure. Um, so I lost my train of thought a lot. I was always taking notes. Um, so there's that context yeah, for where the story is going. Yeah. Um, so I... Then got introduced to a personality t- assessment called the Enneagram. Um, <laughs> we'll talk about that more in future podcasts. Um, I wasn't really big on personality assessments. I studied them in grad school. And it just didn't, they either were too complicated or um, didn't have enough boxed information. In. Yeah, boxed in. It just didn't, I didn't see the usefulness. So when you first came to me and said, hey, read this paragraph, see if you relate to it. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, Lauren, like, I've looked up high uh, personality assessments. I'm not really interested, but I read it and I was like, oh my goodness, like that, that sounds a lot like me. And then I sent you a few more. And it was like, it more. wasn't just like, it sounds like me. It was like, I didn't have language yeah. for that experience. And this has just done that. Or I didn't know how to describe it, but this just did that. And then like a week later, you sent me another one. I'm like, oh, there's no way it's two for two. And again, it was like, oh my gosh, this is so good. So it kind of warmed me over. I'm like, okay, I'll start listening to some podcasts about it. And then I was like, okay, I'll read some books about it. And it it won me over and it gave us uh, language for each other to understand ourselves. Um, so it was really good, which grew a, pa- a little bit of a passion. And so I was like, I want to use this in counseling. Just a, um, not uh, excessively, but just to understand people, give language to people, mm-hmm. give a quick snapshot of people and help them just have a possible good understanding. So I would take, so I took um, some resources from different parts of the internet and I would create a document for the nine personalities. I'm like, oh, this is gonna be so good. I'm so excited. And I was telling Lauren about it and she's like, oh, these sound great. And then one day <laughs> <laughs> um, we were talking about it and I was like, oh, this would be a perfect time for me to show you these documents I'm creating. And um, 
So I start reading them to her and she's like, oh, these are great. She's like, so what are these references? Where, what, like what references did you use and the, as these documents? Like I didn't reference them They're It's like an open source. It's been around for thousands of years. And I, I didn't use that. I didn't put anything on there. And she's like, well, I think you should. I'm like, well, I don't think I need to. And she's like, well, I think you need to. And I just like, forget it. Never mind. I don't know why I share this with you. Slam the computer I shot. Put the computer shot, got up and just walked away. And I went into the kitchen to make lunch. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> something just happened there. Let's see. Like, there's something way more here than what meets the eye. So you came into the kitchen. Yeah. I had my back to you. And you're like, what was that? And I turn around like a healthy counselor would. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I had my arms crossed, uh, like slouching, like, I'm fine. Yeah. And you're like, what do you mean you're fine? Like, I'm fine. Like, what's wrong? I said, nothing. I was like, all upset and closed off. Yeah. And you're like, you're not fine. It was like, as I was standing there, it was almost as if I was your dad telling you that you're not good enough. Mm. And that was like a punch in the gut. And all of a sudden, like, my chin starts quivering and... My ear, my eyes start watering. I'm like, hold it together, Luke. Hold it together. This is too vulnerable. You're, she's not safe. Don't let this let this out. But my wife saw that, and she starts moving towards me. And she didn't say anything. She started moving towards me, and she hugged me. And then I just lost it. Yeah. I started crying. And it was, and, I, and at that point in our journey. I had been practicing what we call now inviting, uh, receiving the invitation to grieve. Mm -hmm. And so um, I just started crying and just sitting talk. on the kitchen floor. And we sat on the kitchen floor for about 45 minutes. And I just started letting out the things that were connected to those, to that feeling I had. Yeah. The disappointments, the frustrations, the, um, the misses, mm. um, my parents loved me. They're great parents, but they weren't perfect parents and they missed me. And they and those misses hurt. Yep. Those misses affected me. Yep. And um, I just started letting those out of like just the fact for 20, for 30 years, I thought I was stupid because I had ADD and didn't know it. Yep. And, and because of all that, I didn't think I had anything to offer to people. I thought it was... Um, stupid to try to uh create something for people yeah. um uh i'm trying to think of the word i used but it was just like like who am i to mm -hmm. think that i would have something to offer people i was naive and it was so powerful because you didn't filter anything right. like you said every thought yep. like present day thought and just you know, attached to all the baggage mm -hmm. of how those thoughts even were formed. And even like uh, wishes, like I wish my dad could have done this. I wish my mom could have done that. Um, and so just giving that voice to my desires, to my needs. Yeah. Um, and there was a, there was a voice in the back of my head saying, well, they tried, they tried, they mm -hmm. tried. And I just, and I tried not to give that in that moment, not to give that power because in that moment, I needed to grieve. Yeah. And you can't grieve without honesty. Yes. And so I had to be honest that this was my experience and it was painful. It wasn't about my parents. 
wasn't about their efforts. It was about my safety and yeah. my my experience. And so when I was on that at the table sharing you what I was creating, it was a vulnerable opportunity yep. to express it wasn't just something some documents. It was it was years of work getting up to the confidence of saying, I can do something. Yeah. And you unknowingly, mm-hmm. you're just trying to help. I missed the bid. It was really a bid too. It was. And you, you missed it. And in that moment, my frontal lobe turns off and doesn't see my wife who's trying to help me and trying mm-hmm. to um, help uh, better um, this document. It was, you're not safe. Yeah. It was you're that lion that is going to attack me. You're, you're not, um, you're not safe. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not going to um, comfort me. You don't believe in me. Mm-hmm. And in that, my frontal lobe turns off, and I go to survival. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to push you away. I'm gonna shut you down, and I'm going to get out of the situation. Yeah. And, and I had a choice there mm-hmm. and many times in the past, I would have matched that energy with, oh, you're pissed at me. I can be pissed at you too. Watch me. <laughs> Watch how mad I can get. I can match that in a heartbeat. And I, and I've done that so many times and I've missed your heart in that, mm-hmm. that you weren't, you weren't trying to be um, defensive prideful. or prideful or hurt or uh, well, you were hurt. You weren't trying to be hurtful right. to me. You you were experiencing something that was bigger than that event. Yeah. And when you when you attune to your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend, you you choose to see beyond the present situation yeah. because that's who they are. They're not just who they are today. No one's a blank slate. No one wakes up in yeah. the morning and is like, oh, push the button. I'm a blank slate of a human today. That's not how we work. Yeah. And so in that moment, I'm so glad in hindsight, especially because now we have this excellent opportunity to share it with you all, <laughs> that I didn't just push you away because that that would have been easy to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I put down my pride um, and I recognized how I missed something yep. and I leaned in towards you. And it, and it brought incredible, I mean, that hour in the kitchen was so... It was powerful, powerful yeah. for you and for me to bear witness to what was happening and the shifts that you were allowing as you were inviting that grief yeah. to sit with us. You created safety when you attuned. You, you didn't just so you attuned and saw something's wrong, right? But then you moved towards and engaged in a loving way, yeah, and it allowed me to have those hard emotions, yeah. And you create that safety. Yep, felt safety. Yep, that felt safety, which deactivated my limbic system mm-hmm. and activated and and connected, rewired my brain in that moment, so that my that trigger mm-hmm. um, was no longer unresolved. Yeah, there was there was safety, which the more times that happens, the thicker the the neural networking is between your frontal lobe and your limbic system, which creates that experiential safety. Yeah. It creates that, that attachment, that strong attachment, that secure attachment. Um, and so that's kind of an example of, of story work from the beginning mm-hmm. to grieving. Mm-hmm. And then that grieving 
why grieving is so important because you might say, okay, I can acknowledge story. Why do I have to tell my story? Why do I have to engage with my story? Because again, that without telling your story, it doesn't um, rewire your brain. Um, in that moment, Lauren was that safe person and her limbic system, who was, which was regulated, yeah. was able to communicate to my limbic system, which was dysregulated, and, and soothe it, which again, rewires that brain from the limbic system to the frontal lobe and says, okay, this is safe. She is safe. And the more experiences you have with people and more experiences you have resolving trauma is what creates your ability to create relationships and int have intimacy with people because mm -hmm. your brain's saying, people are safe. Yeah. People are, can be trusted. They're not just trying to hurt you. You're not being triggered all the time. And you're, you're like, yeah, you're, you're more regulated. Mm -hmm. It, it leads you to a place of being able to be a more regulated human. So that next time your detail oriented, overly critical wife <laughs> points out something, you, your body is so much less likely to respond right. in that way. And you're able to um, stay online and stay in your frontal lobe yeah. and, and take the feedback and not, not um, I don't know the scientific word for it, but I, well, I guess dysregulate yeah. into um, into that chaotic place of shame and, and doubt and hate because you've resolved that trauma. Exactly. It's super powerful stuff. I, I was dysregulated. I became hypo. Yeah. And in your ability to regulate yourself and not become hyper mm -hmm. and attack, yeah. you stay regulated and able to regulate me. And there was healing was able to happen. Yeah. And we're not able, we wouldn't be either, neither one of us would have been able to do that if it, we weren't looking at our stories. Right. Definitely. If we weren't um, seeing the impact of our past, how it affects the, the present. Yeah. Can I ask you if on that kitchen floor, as we were sitting and talking and you were sharing all of these, these feelings about yourself, all of this disdain that had to come out. Hmm. What if I had um, disagreed with you and been like, babe, that's not true. You know, that's not true. Why? What, what would that have done for you if that was my response? Because that's what I wanted to say <laughs> really bad. Yeah. It was so hard to see someone I love so deeply and think is literally incredible and can do anything and is just like my hero to say these things it was like everything in me wanted to fix Save those me. things yeah. and yeah and take you out of that horrible place that you were in or you know that the it wasn't horrible because it was purposeful it was, it was but hard painful yeah. right just like super painful. agonizing place what would that have communicated to you well you would have taken away that safety um mm. And I'm not even sure I would have even heard you. Yeah. Because I was still in the process of dysregulation mm -hmm. and, and grief. Um, but it would have shut me down for sure because it, it was no longer a safe place to explore hurt. You were, even though you were trying to communicate, you're amazing, you're great, but it communicated your, your experience isn't real. Yeah. Um, you, and when we are not able to affirm our someone's pain, then you're unaffirming it. Right. Which is denying it, mm -hmm. um, which creates 
on safety. Mm-hmm. And so it would, it would, it would also sort of shut down that process of, of grief. It was happening, which needed so, like, I would have, we would have missed out mm-hmm. on something so special. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's really important to um, also say that when you're, when someone's grieving, just that remember, sometimes just being a warm body of, of like emotionally present right is not necessarily a, a thing that you need to say yeah. or a formula you need to do yeah most of the times when i've done this grief work with you you haven't said anything mm-hmm. you've just held my hand um held me and just been present and allowing me to just vent everything that i'm feeling in that moment and so just remember that like i just encourage you guys to remember that that um don't put the pressure on yourself to fix or to to mm. coach people through grief. Sometimes it just let it, let it run its course. Yeah. And there's a group of people who um, we happen to be part of and we love dearly, but uh, Christians <laughs> who tend to miss this mm-hmm. um, yeah. because we've misconstrued scripture, yeah. really. Um, but is there a nice little word for that when we do that? As Christians, like over like spiritualizing, but or... specifically, someone says something hard, and we have to spin it upward and make it nice. We spiritually bypass. Bypass, yeah. It's uh, I, I call it also popping up, popping up, yeah, popping up. But we haven't talked about the U diagram yet, no, so we haven't. popping up won't make as much sense. <laughs> yeah, just um, what is bypass- that? Yeah, spiritual bypassing is basically just um someone's grieving and you're trying to build that bridge to them feeling better and so you use maybe spiritual verses or principles and um oh god wants to work all things out for the good of that mm-hmm. of those who love him or yeah. god has a plan or he's yeah. going to redeem this or we've had people have um who have lost children and them say like oh at least he's in heaven or god god was just jealous and wanted him mm-hmm. it's just and that's not what we need to hear. It's, it's profoundly painful. And it and just being able that's it's a symptom of not doing your own story yeah. work. Yeah. Because you're not able to sit in emotion deep emotions right. with other people. With yourself. With yourself. Therefore you can't do it with other people. Exactly. So that's another reason why it's so important to do our story work is not only because the way it affects us in a way, the filters that we, our brain puts on to interpret our relationships around us, but we can't love people well. Yeah. Um, yeah. We can't affirm other people's suffering when we haven't affirmed our own suffering. Yeah. We actually will, um, if we're not honest with our story, we're just minimizing our story. Mm-hmm. And therefore we can't, be honest with other people's story and other hurt, right. and we'll just minimize it. Yeah. Um, if I can push through my pain and my past doesn't affect me, then your past doesn't affect you. Mm. And it's so damaging, and we miss out on so many opportunities to love people well. Yeah. And as Christians, to be Jesus's hands and feet to people. Yeah. Um. Like just remind, like the stories of come to my mind of Jesus, um, like the woman at the well. Mm. He didn't come to her and say, okay, that's your past. You need to 
pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, and move on. He sat with her in this and said, and saw the pain mm -hmm. and gave her in the midst of that, gave her hope, yeah. but he didn't minimize her experience. Right. He gave her hope and said, like, you're thirsty. I want to quench that thirst. Yeah. You have a need. Like in that, on the kitchen floor, I had a need. You did. I needed to be heard. I needed to have a voice. I need, and I needed to be a benevolent witness to my story. You did. There's a quote. I can't remember who it's by, but um, it's been just so profound that every pain on earth desires a benevolent witness. Mm -hmm. I love that. It's amazing. In in that story, Jesus was the benevolent was a benevolent witness to her story. Yeah, you were one to mine. I think too of the story of Lazarus and how ridiculous it was if you look at it logically yeah. because he knew he knew he wasn't going to be dead for long right but he sat in that grief and that pain with his friends and he meant it it wasn't a show it was it was his genuine emotional engagement with people he loved um yeah the bible doesn't say jesus pretended to weep right <laughs> just pretended to cry with mary he made it look like he didn't know what was going no he he, uh, he experienced i mean emotion what a profound story of mm -hmm. being able to emotionally attune to people you love yep. to meet them where yep. they're at and and offer that tangible love that yep. you could feel and experience on an emotional heart soul level yeah amazing it is amazing and um it's just profound how it transforms our ability to love people it does and like you said, we want to be able to give people what they need. We yeah. don't want, we don't want to be people that engage with like trite sentiments and like formulas and, oh, if life's will just be great, if you just do X, Y, Z, or yeah. that is so not what we need. That's not what our hearts need. Yeah. Like the, the beauty of community and of being known is that it's genuine, yes. that it's something real and and fought for and wrestled for and and it's not easy like if you if you have an easy little thing to say to someone in their pain or their anger or their just agony in this world that we experience um it's probably it's probably not what you need to say <laughs> if it's gonna make you feel like warm fuzzies and like oh i got that done today right you're probably not um emotionally uh, attuning to them mm. in a meaningful way and it's it's likely because you can't attune to your own heart and your own story and you can't like luke said we can only give what we have so if, if we can't learn to sit in our own um story grief good hard angry all the parts then we will not be able to do that with other people well yeah and we also mentioned that like our story grief needs honesty in order to grieve well. Right. Um, if we can't be honest with our story, we can't allow other people to be honest with their story. Yes. We force them to be dishonest yeah. with their story. Or um, like to have an excuse. Like mm. Another thing I see a lot is with story work is not being able to be honest about their parents. Yeah. Um, I hear over and over, my parents tried. Or my parents had had this type of parent, so of course they weren't they weren't able to do this. And 
also we feel like if we are honest, then we're being disrespectful, just honoring. Yeah. And, or it's not purposeful because we're just, what's the purpose of just sitting in this pain? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm just going to just be bitter my entire life. And story work isn't, the end goal isn't to sit. Yeah. You don't just acknowledge the pain and sit there and say, okay, I have this pain. You're acknowledging it, then you're grieving it. And you're rewiring the brain for the purpose of of emotional regulation and, and community and intimacy. Yeah. And hopefully even reconciliation if there's broken relationships. Definitely. And on an even bigger level, not that those things aren't the, the goal, but yeah. breaking the cycles that yes. led to that in the first place. Right. You all, they always say, you know, like, oh, uh, the parent, the parents are alcoholic and the kids are alcoholic. And the, like those, those uh, generational patterns, patterns come from somewhere. And they don't get stopped unless we intentionally stop them. Yes. And yeah, our parents did things to us out of the places where they were parented from often. Um, but we each have a choice to do our own inner work, to stop yeah. those cycles so that we are giving our children more, uh, more yeah. what they deserve. So that we can, so our kids can have a, a healthier attachment so they can have a better life. Mm -hmm. like we always, people always say, like, I want to give my kids more. So I, I'm critical of them <laughs> or I push them. It's the best way to do that is loving them. Yeah. It's and, the relationship. And you can't love them if you aren't able to love yourself and do your own story work. Um, acknowledging your parents' failures is not dishonoring or disrespectful. That's just honesty. Mm. Um, I think everybody can look at, look at people around and say, oh, they're imperfect. Mm-hmm. As Christians, we know that there's sin, we believe that there's sin, and that sin has affected all of us. So, of course, our parents made mistakes. Our parents hurt us. They were selfish. They were um, ignorant. They were angry. They mishandled situations. So, it's not being disrespectful, dishonoring. It's, it's just being honest. Yeah. Um, we're not trying to ruin their reputation or their name. We're just saying, they messed up, they failed, and this is how it affected me. Mm -hmm. And now I'm going to grieve and take full account of how those actions have right. affected me, affected my relationships. Um, like some of my my uh, traumas, wounds, has taken away like confidence. Like that was one of the things I I grieved on the floor. It was like, yeah, because of some of these things, I don't have confidence. I, because I didn't have confidence. Um, I wasn't able to love you well. I wasn't able to love my kids well. I wasn't able to be the best counselor that God created me to be. I wasn't, what did I miss out on? Um, all the, the stress of, of school um, because I thought I was stupid. Um, and there was just so much there that was just taking full account of all of the things that, in the ways that it had affected me. Yeah. And in that honesty, I could grieve it. Um, and through those grievings, I've been able to be in a position where I've actually shared some of this with my parents. Mm -hmm. um, my relationship with my parents is is growing and is mm -hmm. healing. Um, and they've been able to receive your heart and receive the the pain of it, yep. even though it's been very painful. Like when my kids come to me as an, as adults and they share with me, because I know they will, they share with me all the ways I have landed them in counseling. Um, it's going to be super hard. But that, like if we can't acknowledge and recognize how we don't only give good to our kids, 
then we're just going to perpetuate that even more. Absolutely. So what other um, reasons do you see people avoiding looking at their story and addressing their story? Some people don't think that they have a story. Mm. So kind of going back to what we said earlier is like, my child was pretty good. Like mm. there was no physical abuse, no sexual abuse. My life was, I mean, my childhood was good. My, my parents took care of me. There was a roof over my head. We went to church, we ate three meals a day. So life was, life was good. Yeah. And that is good, but that doesn't mean you don't have a hard story. Sure. Um, Do you think most people have hard stories? I do. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, there's obviously harder stories than others, but um, if there's insecure attachment, then you've had a hard story. Mm-hmm. Um, even with a secure attachment, that mean that doesn't mean you didn't experience hard things. Yeah. Whether it was at school, um, in sports, in college, there's there's always things that are still influencing us. Mm-hmm. Um. Because our our present reality is filtered through our past experiences. Yeah, I'll keep on saying that. Um, our present reality is filtered through our past experiences. So whether it's big T trauma or little T trauma, yeah, it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because it's your brain's experience is um, interpreting them um, as. A dangerous thing yeah and they impact your your brain chemistry and uh your perceptions yep and how you engage with people and yourself yes and and so a lot of people i find say they don't have a story mm-hmm. because there's usually some fear of if i look at my story it's going to take me down a, a path where i'm going to lose control which is yeah. another reason uh, people avoid it it's just i'm going to lose control if i look down this I'm going to be in counseling for the next 10 years mm-hmm. or I'm going to be crying for the next six months. Like yeah. I have a life I need to live. I need, there's things I have to do. I'm a parent. I have a job on and on. I, I can't afford to do, to look at my story. And, mm. and I say you can't really afford not to. <laughs> as cliche as it is, it's really, you can't afford not yeah. to. Yeah. Well, it, it affects everything. Cause whether you look at your story or not, you're still, your brain is still filtering your, your present reality through your past experiences. Yeah. That's not an intentional act that you're doing. Right. Your, your brain's just doing it and it's doing it before you even realize it's doing it. Sure. Um, so it really is important to try to, to just be honest. Mm. And um, it is scary. What, what like, the, am I going to get stuck? Um, and I also encourage people that when you're on your journey towards healing and you're doing your story work, um, we kind of see it in three stages. There's like, there's the reality that you have a story and that there's loss and there's hurt. Mm. And that kind of is represented like with Friday. This was um, called the U diagram of grief. And it was created by a woman. I don't remember her name, but Kathy Larzell. Thank you. She works um, at the uh, Allender Center. Um, with Dan Allender, uh, they work, they address trauma. And she came up with it and used a, a U diagram. At the top of the U on the beginning, it's Friday, and it represents death, loss. 
and represents like Jesus's death on, cro on the cross. Then Saturday is at the bottom of the U, and it represents um, grief, the mourning, mm -hmm. uh, the mourning of the loss. And so that kind of like the disciples, they were on Saturday crying the loss of Jesus, the loss of what they hoped for, the the loss of the hope for um, a new country, a new rule. Loss um, of the relationship. Loss of the relationship. Um, the loss of safety as they're now being threatened. Um, and they didn't know about Sunday, the resurrection, that there was a new hope and a, and a plan. And so with grief, when you enter your story on that Friday, acknowledging the loss and the hurt and the death, and Saturday, you have to sit in that. Um, and not knowing where, how long you have to sit with that. And then as Christians, we know that there is hope, there is healing, there is an, a, a purpose, but that doesn't stop it from hurting. So a lot of times I could give people the picture of, there's like a big you of this whole season of, of, of uh, grief. And then there's moments of you. And so you're like sitting, it's like that moment in the kitchen, I acknowledged death, I grieved, and I had a re redemption. I moved forward. That was a quick moment. But there was about a two to three year process of a lot of those there. Yeah. And yeah. Um, Just to clarify, the top of the U is the restoration. So if you picture the first point of the U being the death and the loss, the bottom of the U is the the suffering, sitting in the suffering and the grief, the grieving. grief and the the never knowing if anything will return to normal. And then the top of the U, you know, just like picture drawing a normal U, the top of the U on the right side is the restoration and symbolically like the the resurrection of Jesus, right. the new life. Um, yes. Thank you for clarifying that. You're welcome. Appreciate that. No problem. Such a good wife. You know, I'm here. We're here, a great team. Here for the ride. So you were saying like there's there's little there's times we enter that process like even in an hour you right. could go from the top of the U to the bottom to the top but then ultimately our whole lives is <laughs> we experience we're experiencing that yeah um, just because you enter in story doesn't mean you have to be sad for six months or right. a, a whole week yeah um, there was times where I was more anxious for a, a week or two. Yeah. after grieving or yeah. it, was, it was affecting me your body took a hit yeah and my body experienced it yeah um and different triggers so there is that reality um and it's hard and i'm not like you said it's all your whole life mm -hmm. so it's not like i'm on the other end but I'm on the other end of these last three years. Yeah, and of and of really processing and dealing with some really painful parts of your story that had continued to keep you stuck yeah. for years into your adulthood. Absolutely. So though, I mean, there's always going to be new traumas and new pain in life, new suffering, and new realizations, and new realizations of things that you didn't realize about yeah. your childhood. But we now feel like we're more equipped um, to when it comes. Like this is something we say to each other: like, don't fight it. When that comes and that opportunity for grief comes, just go sit in the bottom of that you and find a benevolent witness mm -hmm. and be there with them and let them be there with you. And it feels very unproductive, yeah. especially for certain personality types that like want it to be yeah. very, um, 
you know, just points and facts and like, let's just do this thing. It's more nuanced than yeah. that. There's a great book. Um, if you're preparing to enter into this, um, it's called Try Softer by Andy Kolber. Mm. It's such a great book of... Highly recommend. Highly recommend it. Of how to um, be productive in your own productivity. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, you feel like you're just not purposeful, not productive, but really you have to re-evaluate uh, what productivity is. Yeah. And it's actually very productive and very efficient Yeah. if you actually try softer than try harder to get through this these grieving moments yeah um and so yeah highly recommend that book it's so good um and on this side a something i'm thankful for mm. um is the ability to have emotions mm -hmm. like i never thought i would have to say that um <laughs> because i was afraid of them um and i wasn't good at them i was I kind of experienced anger and happiness. Yeah. Um, sadness was not in my repertoire of, mm -hmm. of experiencing emotions. And so in the last, um, like I would cry once every like five years. <laughs> yeah, you would. <laughs> it's, that's not an exaggeration. Um, but now I'm not crying all the time, but I'm able to engage with sadness. Um, I'm able to cry with my kids. I'm able to cry with my wife. I'm able to cry for myself and for my story. Um, and and that's been really good. Um, there's times where even my youngest son, um, he's like, Dad, I haven't seen you cry much, but I remember, but I have seen you cry. And he goes, mm -hmm. one time I saw you cry, you cried with me. And it was really meaningful for him oh. that he and his grieving of his story he was able to experience me and his his mother and me crying with him which will absolutely impact him for the rest of his life right like what little boy when they have to grieve a big loss at six seven and eight and have their parents there with them not fixing it not spiritually bypassing it and telling him, well, he should be thankful for his good life. Right. Oh, Lord, help me if I ever say that. Um, and being there with him and feeling the weight of it. Yeah. I mean, that will be transformative for him and his story. He'll he'll be telling his kids that when he's 40. It's like, it's just that's how meaningful it is when the people we love the most can offer this to us. Yeah. It's it's like love in action. Right. And so we've talked a, a lot about why some people avoid this story work. We've also talked about and tried to share our experience with why we encourage people to do story work. Um, and it's been fun to talk about. Um, again, not necessarily easy. Yeah. Um, but Maybe it's, not fun. Yeah. But it's been meaningful. Um, meaningful. <laughs> yeah. That's probably a better word. Yeah. And uh, we've enjoyed sharing this with you guys all our listeners we thank you and we just encourage you um to look at your story to be honest with your story whatever that story looks like just be honest with it um and find someone safe it may not be the person that's closest to you yeah. they may not be at a point in their journey yet where they can do this work with you yeah. so find someone who you know has done a lot of their own work 
and their own story. Um, if that needs to be a professional, do it. Yeah. It's worth it. it if does. there's no one close to you that f you feel like can um, do this dance with you and, and handle the weight of this um, or even the complexity of your story, find someone professionally who can. And it will be um, such a meaningful investment for your family, for you, for uh, your future. All, all relationships that yep. you have in your future. So I encourage you, go explore, be on that journey. Know you have a story. Value your story because your story matters. That's right. While it is a joy to provide our podcast content as a source of life enrichment, please note that information shared is not intended to replace or contradict any professional therapy or medical advice.